Did Zelensky make the sale? Will the words lady and gentleman eventually be banned? Plus, the omnibus, the omnibus. We'll discuss all this and more on this pre-Christmas edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by Philip, Phil Klein, Madeline, Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael, Brendan, Doherty, you are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are the Fire.org and Act and Unwind. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget said anything. And before I do anything else, let's hear a message from our friends at thefire.org. You know, only one in three Americans believe we can fully exercise our free speech rights. That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights. Join the fight for free speech at www.thefire.org. Again, www.thefire.org. Please check it out. Extremely important cause, obviously. So MBD, President Zelensky makes a surprise trip to Washington, D.C., wearing his uh, characteristic uh, uh, olive drab or whatever it is, pants and uh, sweatshirt and uh, met with with uh, rapturous acclaim pretty much on, on both sides of the aisle with some exceptions of uh, uh, the right wing uh, of the Republican caucus, a handful of members and uh, got widely slammed by populist voices on Twitter and elsewhere. So where I am on this on just Zelensky, before we get to the underlying causes, I'm a little annoyed now by the cult of personality around him. I mean, I think it's hugely admirable what he did, but, uh, you know, staying in the country, rallying his country is incredible, but just, just, it's, it's just, it's a little, it's a little much, it's a little much. But on the other hand, I just don't get the burning hatred directed at this guy from uh, the, the, the realist or isolationist or whatever you want to call it, right, where they're basically like, look at this, you know, Eastern European pimp in a tracksuit. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm basically with you. Uh, I mean, I wrote that I, I think the cult that is developed around Zelensky in the West, which is much stronger in Congress than it is in Ukraine, by all evidence, right? I mean, one of the things, even when, you know, the Atlantic's correspondents go to Ukraine, they say, oh, you know, a lot of people in Ukraine feel free to criticize Zelensky in pretty harsh terms uh, in a way that I think we don't feel free in the in the U.S. to criticize him um, if you're in anywhere near the mainstream. But I think he's tied the cult of his personality back to the Ukrainian national cause in an admirable way. Um and, you know, he's, he's kept a government functioning under the most incredible, stressful um, time imaginable. And, you know, I, I think the criticisms of his, you know, the kind of costume he's wearing, I mean, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, Churchill wore military style clothing when he was rallying people during world war two, even though he looked more ridiculous in it than Zelensky does. Um, 
you know, I think that's totally besides the point. I mean, um, you can admire Zelensky's bearing his, his leadership uh, or think he's doing a great job for Ukraine while still thinking Ukraine's interests and the United States are not totally convergent on one another. And, um, and in fact, I actually thought Biden, um, I mean, maybe this is skipping ahead, but um, I thought Biden actually was doing a, a pretty decent job of distinguishing Ukraine's interests from America's where, mm-hmm. you know, he was kind of saying they kind of had a, a joint press conference and Zelensky saying total victory. We're not negotiating. We're going to get all of our territory back. We're going to restore our sovereignty and Russia's going to pay for it. Um, and on the other side, you know, Biden's not saying, you know, we're supportive of total victory. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was highlighting that in fact, um, there are levels beyond which, you know, the NATO alliance would be strained if you gave certain weapon systems to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. That, could strike, gonna, that could strike deeper into Russia. Yeah. And he's not going to strain. He's not going to break the alliance over this. So I thought, I thought that was, um, I actually thought Biden was pretty responsible uh, about this while the commentary class was insane. I mean, you know, you're right that there is a, you know, there's kind of an insanity of, you know, calling, I think Tucker is wrong to just call him like a, a strip club manager. Um, but on the other side, like <laughs> I, th- I find the other side more insane where you have, you know, supposed historian, Michael Beschloss going on television and saying, I demand to know why people weren't clapping. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. you know? I was like, yeah, was like five people not clapping. And <laughs> that's the major focus. He's, he's, he's demanding. I, I forget his name is going to stand up or not. The one guy who wouldn't stand up for anything. Right. <laughs> he was demanding to know and, and saying like, we have a right to know whether they love Putin or they hate <laughs> democracy. And it's just like, for like, it's amazing to see these supposed historians like Beschloss or Tim Snyder of communist atrocities immediately invoke an idea from the Stalin era of like, keep clapping or mm-hmm. else. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, but it's a proof of the, the one thing that I thought George Orwell got right in his essay on nationalism is that it's very easy to be more nationalistic about another country because you don't know its faults. And so you can mm-hmm. project, you can more easily project onto it every romantic notion Mm-hmm. And I think that is something we are seeing here is that like, and especially with uh, the left who is uncomfortable talking about American patriotism, they've cast this war as like a global struggle for democracy progress against mm-hmm. a Christian nationalist Putin. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's very easy for them to kind of like get yeah. swept up in it. So, so Maddie, I was, uh, I, I didn't watch the speech, uh, and I, I just tuned into some of the ca- cable chatter a, a little bit late. So, so Tucker had already moved on to other stuff, but, uh, Rachel Maddow was hosting the coverage at MS, MSNBC and they were still on it. I don't know whether it was like 45 minutes after the speech and, and, and they're all agreeing, oh, he, he invoked the battle of the bold. That's so amazing. It's so eloquent. It's so apt and just... On and on and on. Uh, so again, just uh, like Zelensky itself, I think the, some of the pro-Ukraine stuff is over the top. But 
all that said, and I also agree with MBD, this is not a struggle, a, a global struggle for democracy, as Zelensky says, and some some supporters of the war say. I mean, democracy is going to survive in this country uh, and every other country in the world one way, one way or the other, whatever happens in Ukraine. But that said, I, I think it's a just cause. I, I, I think it's a deal. Um, it's a it's a lot of money, but still we're degrading this this adversary of the West that if it actually prevailed in Ukraine would have its eyes on a, an even more uh, treacherous and, and dangerous prize that might directly uh, involve war uh, with a uh, with a NATO member, which uh, obviously takes us to a whole whole new level. So I, I'm basically on board. It's just the the excesses uh, annoy me a little bit. Yeah, I think the excesses are are concerning for for the reason that there's there's an element of managing expectations here that that we need to remember so yeah of course uh 10 10 months ago when the war broke out we were all concerned about uh Zelensky's immediate safety and he obviously very courageously stayed in Ukraine and his first trip out of Ukraine is a big deal he comes to the US that's obviously very symbolic um so you understand why people are excited about that and uh supportive of him but in in the back of my mind is just that this has got to end at some point and all wars end in some form of negotiation and oftentimes those are dirty compromises mm-hmm. and I think Michael's right Biden was responsible and deserves credit for that but th- there's going to be a point at which you know is Zelensky's ideal idea of a compromise or or negotiation that he can live with going to be the same as the United States and it very likely won't be and so you're you're in this situation where you know some of the rhetoric uh just doesn't match what what we're going to end up doing um -hmm. and that's why I think I think there should be a bit more um well not necessarily completely aloof but just more aloof than than we've seen um the 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 interests of the Ukraine a little more cold-eyed yeah, a little more cold-eyed, um, you know, just recognising that the reality that these are two different countries, the United States and Ukraine, and they have different interests and they're allies and they have common interests, of course, which they're, they are in, in lockstep about. But this isn't this isn't a completely comfortable arrangement. And and while this was a very fruitful trip for Zelensky in a lot of ways, you know, he got more more money, I think, what was it, $1.85 billion, um, and then the Pentagon delivering these... Um, Patriot missile d- defense battery system to intercept more of the Russian assaults. Um, that's that's good, but like there there are limits, and I think that this sort of standing ovations and gushing uh, praise and, and is not really remembering that there are limits, and we're going to run into them at some point if we haven't already. So, Phil, you—I uh, don't want to exaggerate. I just—we just used the word uh, "cold-eyed." Uh, you, you look at this uh, at least in part through green-eyed shades. Sh- shades like, uh, can, can we can we afford this? How long is this this going to go on? And and it, it's a bad idea to spend at this level forever. Yeah, I've been playing my role um, as the Scrooge of the season. Um, I mean, my issue is is. You know, I, you know, it's no shock to people who are readers or listeners of me that I'm very concerned with our mounting debt problem. Um, and I think that the problem we have is that everyone's arguing about should we support Ukraine or not uh, as if it's in a vacuum and we're not 
considering the longer term costs. And we've had a series of these sort of individual targeted bills that have seemed like they're responding to an immediate emergency. But if you tally them up, we're at over $100 billion within one year of the war. Um, and I mean, to just put this in context, a lot of people argue about USAID for Israel, whether we're too supportive of Israel, what the implications of, are that of the, our aid to Israel is 38 billion over a decade. So we're more, we're basically two and a half times aid to Israel in one year of this, the, the cost of Obamacare this year after, um, Democrats hiked up, uh, the subsidy levels, the 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 cost of that of the subsidies for people to purchase um, insurance on the Obamacare exchanges was eighty nine billion in twenty twenty two, so we're over that. So this is a real money, and, and my point is that I can see the argument, the moral and strategic case for supporting Ukraine, but we're clearly not in a situation in which. This is a sort of a few week or a few month type of incident uh, issue. We're in um, a situation in which this is a long term protracted conflict. The Soviets were in Afghanistan for ten years. If we keep um, if we keep um, put giving more and more aid to Ukraine without no any conditions. Zelensky has no reason to go to the negotiating table anytime soon. So if we're looking, and then on top of that, there's the, the rebuilding, which um, one Ukrainian official said it could cost $750 billion to do that. Do we think Europe's going to pay for that rebuilding? Of course, that number goes up the longer the war takes place. So when you add it all up, we're really not talking about a ten billion dollar bill here, a twenty billion there, forty five billion, you know, over there. We're talking about potentially, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars over time. A trillion dollars is not completely out of out of possibility. So, if everyone says that this is such a huge priority, Mitch McConnell said that it, when Republicans considered the defense budget that the, their top priority was making sure Ukraine had, had uh, the military aid it needed, then we should just have a serious discussion about how we're going to budget this for this, what else we're going to cut, how else we're going to raise the money to pay for the support for Ukraine. Um, and if it's such a priority, people should make the case that this is a higher priority than something else. And so I just think that it's irresponsible to not have this discussion. And it's not clear to me what the, the you know, limiting principle of this is. And what you don't have this time is there's no skeptical anti-war left because the, the, the politics of this, the politics of this were completely distorted by the, the Russia controversy and the Ukraine impeachment in which it, it's sort of among Democrats, it's now that y you have to, you know, whatever is seen as fighting and standing up to Putin has to be um, supported, that we have to support Ukraine no matter what, because it's tantamount to, to giving Putin what he wants and to being MAGA. And I mean, I look back at the controversy when McCain made the statement 
when Russia attacked Georgia in 2008, and he said, we're, we're, we're all Georgians, Georgians now. now. Yeah. Right? That was mocked and laughed at, right? Like, on Earth, too, if McCain was, were president at some point and Russia invaded Ukraine, and he said, we, if he's saying some of the things that Democrats are saying now, they'd be like, oh, typical warmonger Ukraine wants to escalate this mm -hmm. conflict. Yeah. Um, in Russia, and now they're acting like if you just say, "Well, that you know, hundred billion dollars is is not monopoly money; that's real money." They're like, "Oh, you're a Putin apologist." I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it, I mean, it's, 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 it's a it's a politically correct position now. You ha you had members of the the squad and um, members of, of the left of the Democratic House Caucus a couple months ago releasing a letter that uh, it was fairly anodyne, just saying we should talk to to Russia about you know. What, what a possible deal should be. And they had to revoke, revoke it because the, the fire from their own side was so intense. So exit question to you, MBD, first. And MBD, I feel a little guilty here because I, I don't think you had a chance to, to express your full rage at the, the Hawks and the, the NATO expansionists. Uh, uh, so feel free to, to get a dollop or rage or two in, into your uh, answer to the, the exit question if you feel, feel so, so moved. But the, the question is, a year from now, the um, or whenever we need to replenish our um, uh, spending, Ukraine spending, when whenever the next bite of the apple comes, it will be uh, you know the, the same the same level basically as we've we've had over the last year or so, or will be diminished because public opinion will be flaking off. Um, same level or diminished? Ooh, um, I think. Same level or maybe higher. <laughs> uh, uh, I think the situation will get more acute over next year as Russia brings its manpower and mobilization to bear, uh, and the you know Ukraine's economy continues to um, degrade and collapse, uh, even with all the financial aid that Europe and the United States are starting to promise to help just keep its basic budget going. Um, yeah. I mean, I listen, <laughs> I don't, I don't have time for all the rage. Um, I'll just say that what like, I don't have time for all the rage. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to take up all of Christmas with, with, with my rage. <laughs> on this. Well, wow, you're just, really feeling the spirit of the season here. Oh, I just want to say though, that the, the, the argument I've made from the beginning is that detaching Ukraine from Russia, from Russia's influence is a, is just such a massive project, right? It is, and it, it is proceeding on lots of fronts. Of course, Russia is helping this project along, of course, by invading and injuring Ukraine in such a grievous way. But Ukraine is, is pursuing a really aggressive anti-Russian cultural politics inside of its borders, uh, aimed at the Russian language. Um, that's part of it. Part of it is its desire to, to be incorporated into the EU so that it could have some kind of economic future that's not tied to Russia. But that is, that, that, those present enormous problems. And, and we see those problems in the east, eastern part of the European Union already, where pre-existing Soviet infrastructure, much more than ideological affinity, is what causes places like Hungary to say, Hey, I can't do this, this energy boycott of Russia. Cause I'm like, literally our pipes go to Russia. Like we haven't built anything that goes to 
um, you know, the, the seas around Poland or, or Norway, um, you know, that, that problem is quintupled in Ukraine. And, and even if you could put Ukraine into the EU, like the EU members would accept it. And in its parlous condition, it's nowhere near ready to be accepted into it. Then you would have a, a, the, the problem of a giant Ukrainian brain drain, right? Where every ambitious Ukrainian now has a right to move to London or to Germany to make a future for themselves, which has been a horrible problem for countries like Poland, uh, Greece, uh, Romania, in their economic development inside the EU. So it's just... This is a massive project, and I feel like we're so focused on the 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 comic book aspect of Putin the villain, Zelensky the hero, that we're not actually looking at the giant problem that's coming down the pike at us in the future. That's that's as much rage as I'll get out today. <laughs> so, Maddie, same level or lower? You know, Michael's answer was so long that I've forgotten exactly. What <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So the, well, the spending, the spending, be the, the next bite of the apple. They'll, you know, will we'll have to come, come. They'll have to come around uh, needing more, more funding. Um, some, sometime next year, we'll basically be at the same level th- these bills have been at roughly, you know, over the last year, or it will be, will it be diminished because public opinion is growing exhausted. I think, I think possibly slightly diminished. Actually, I think um, as spending exceeds budget in other places, I think the American public's priorities will will reflect that. Phil Klein? I'd say it's uh, comparable. Uh, I basically think that the if we face if we gave Americans a real choice, because I think that in if you asked Americans, do you think that America should support Ukraine? The answer would be a majority yes. But if you if you basically force them to make actual choices, do you think that we should add to the debt to support Ukraine? Do you think that we should raise taxes to support Ukraine? Do you think that we should cut Social Security um, to support Ukraine? Should we cut our own military budget to support Ukraine? I think that the numbers would change, but we essentially have a false choice in which People in which um, people in power, as long as the music's still playing, are just going to keep going along with the way things are. And the way things are are that we're just going to have a $20 billion bill there, a $10 billion emergency bill. There'll be some bill to keep the government open that will include some sort of Ukraine aid uh, that people will push for. And to me, it's probably just going to still happen because I think that you pretty much the Democrats are united in providing Ukraine aid. And I think probably a majority of Republicans are there. And even if even if Kevin McCarthy might want to push back a little, certainly there are enough Republicans to um, I I don't necessarily certainly there are enough Republicans to, um, you know, give uh, McCarthy some pause about bringing up aid or maybe doing something where it's, um, they'll add oversight to it or, or some other such thing that might happen. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, if you have 218 people in the House willing to vote for something, then 
you could just um, put together a discharge position and force something to the floor. And clearly, if you take all of the Democrats, there are enough Republicans to pass whatever Ukraine aid they're, they're, you know, Ukraine asked for. Yeah, I basically agree with that. I think it'll be at the same level. I think public opinion will con- continue to um, slide the the other way, but there's a strong bipartisan majority in the Senate. There'll be an increasing, but, but still relatively small um, fraction of the Republican House caucus that won't be enamored of this, but they will get end up getting jammed. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, Act and Unwind. There's news and information constantly coming at us from all sides. With this barrage of information, it's difficult to stay up to speed with everything that's happening in the world. Who can you trust to explain what's going on from a perspective that values both faith and freedom? That's where Act and Unwind comes in. Just as there's no other organization that brings you a perspective that values faith, liberty, and free enterprise like the Acton Institute, there's no other podcast that tackles the issues of the day in quite the same way. As Acton Unwind. Every Monday, you'll hear from host Eric Cohen and experts from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty as they take you through the news of the week and a roundtable conversation, breaking down the issues and stories that matter and demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free economic activity in a way that's clear, concise, and entertaining. Whether it's about politics, religion, or culture, you'll get Acton's unique outlook on the world connecting good intentions with sound economics as it promotes a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Act Unwind, visit actin.org slash NR or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. That's actin.org slash NR to subscribe to the Act and Unwind podcast. So, Phil, you have uh, established that you are not a fan of the uh, omnibus that uh, uh, passed uh, 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 the is it just the Senate or has the House done it done it yet? I don't know. We're recording here on, on Friday morning. But anyway, this 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 big bill um, is a done deal. And I'll uh, rather than just inviting you to um, go through the, the litany of um, parade of horribles in, in this this bill, which is there is a parade of horribles. Um, let me put this uh, argument to you from pro omnibus uh, Republicans, which is look at. You know, the, the House is, is dysfunctional. You have, um, you know, just a five-seat majority for Kevin McCarthy, assuming he's, he's Speaker. You have um, a bunch of House Republicans who will vote just for no no uh, omnibus-type bill. So if you didn't do it now, what you'd get is a negotiation next year where McCarthy might, the way Paul Ryan did uh, his, his first time through the gate as Speaker, go to Democrats to have to get the, uh, a bill through. Uh, assuming you know you're not just going to have a, a shutdown, which probably would not end end well, either. So you certainly wouldn't you wouldn't have gotten what you got here, which is uh, a plus up in defense spending and a break in the the parity between uh, defense spending and domestic spending. There's more defense than uh, domestic, so that certainly would go away. And you'd have Democrats actually with with more leverage, even though you have formally Republicans controlling one chamber of commerce uh, of Congress. Does that uh, persuade you at all? No. And I think the the bigger problem, I think, is that, you know, what I wrote this week was that the omnibus is a scandal. And the reason why is that 
not necessarily that it's shocking or salacious or surprising, but precisely that we've become acclimated to the idea that this is just the way that business is done in Washington, that they just plop a $4,000 bill down um, a few days before. Yeah, over 4,000 pages, and they just plop it down and say, you just have to to pass this or else government's going to shut down before Christmas. Veterans won't have care. And if you don't, oh, yeah. and, and by the way, we need to get home for the holidays. That was the, the, the yeah. uh, Chuck Grassley left, left a letter at the front of the Senate chamber reminding everyone if they, they didn't vote on this right away, there was a blizzard coming in the Midwest and people wouldn't be able to get home. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, to the, the point that you outline, yeah, there are various trade-offs with d- doing this versus sort of doing a CR and punting to the next, uh, Congress. But the bottom line is that the only reason that we're doing it this way is that the people in power just created created a system so they could basically get what they want and get what the powerful people want without um, without actual scrutiny of what they're doing. And in the coming weeks, people are going to start digging through all of this nonsense that's in the omnibus and coming out with, oh, my God, can you believe they voted for this? And it'll be too late to stop. Because if you went through a normal process in which last spring they had um, a budget that was passed and then each individual committee had debates for months over what should you know what we should spend money on and what money should should go through you know to what priorities and we had an open debate on this for months and people knew what they were voting for there would be a lot more scrutiny mm-hmm. about what's going on and they don't want that so what they want is to ignore it and make it see i think that basically saying that, oh, well, they always just procrastinate till the last minute gives them uh, too much credit. This is mm-hmm. by design. Mm-hmm. They don't want to have something. If, 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 if there is a controversial uh, spending initiative in July, well, we have months to, to work it, to settle this out. So there's no reason I have to compromise. If it's basically, if you want to get home to your family in Christmas, you have to vote for this bill or else the government shuts down and we have to spend Christmas and New Year's in Washington getting pummeled for, you know, giving a lump of coal to veterans on, on Christmas then you, you have to vote for this. And it's it's an absolute disgrace. I think that it, it's McConnell is, is, it's a disgraceful move by McConnell uh, to tout this um, and to have the temerity to talk about where this ranks relative to inflation when it's an inflation that the government created in the first place with excessive spending. So then we're going to come back and say, oh, well, we have to chase the excessive the inflation that government created with excessive spending to thereby, you know, with more government spending. I mean, it's completely insane. It's an absolute disgrace. Um, and I, I don't join the the root, you know, the people who think that McConnell's the root of all evil. And if you just got rid of him, everything would be settled. But at the same time, the, what he's doing here is completely indefensible. 
Yeah. So, so Maddie, I, I don't think it's crazy argument that it, it could get worse, the, the spending next year, but I'm just totally on board with, with Phil, just as a matter of principle, this is not how it should work. I, I don't care what, even if the outcome is, is worse, actually having appropriations bills that are properly debated and passed individually, that's the way it should happen. This, this is a total distortion of the system. James Madison is twirling in his grave uh, over this, that th this is what we're, we're, we're doing in a, in a, a system that's, that's supposed to uh, support, you know, do, do, all due deliberation where, where people vote on a, a bill that they have no idea what's in it. I was listening to a, a, a well-informed Senator I respect being interviewed on a, a, a rate talk radio show at, a day or two ago, and and the host asked, I forget exactly what the provision was, but he asked, "Oh, is this provision in in the omnibus?" And the the, the senator didn't know. <laughs> He's just about to vote on the thing. Yeah, I mean, like everyone else, I didn't have time to read this, so <laughs> I have to go on trust with my my colleagues who have that that there's this is full of the usual stuff, wastefulness, and um and all the rest of it. But I mean, it strikes me that look, inflation is a 40-year high. It's it's leaving workers with an effective pay cut. People are having to change their plans for go everyday goods and services. And at basic level, policymakers need to be focusing on slowing this down. And the way they do that is by stimulating the economy and, and staying well clear of plans like these to spend trillions of dollars in more inflationary spending. Um, we've already seen this with, with the student loan cancellations. It sounds very compassionate, but of course it's just going to make life much more expensive for Americans with lesser means, and they're already trying to deal with, with inflation. So um, more legislation like this uh, is, is a big problem. And to, to your point, uh, major changes in law deserve their own debate and vote. And this is a basic principle of democracy and so there's a clear democratic deficit here on top of any policy feelings that this this law has MBD. yeah you know this i agree with almost everything phil said the the bill is uh an example of the dysfunction of congress the the kind of abdication of the role that congress really should be playing uh it's an abdication partly to leadership and partly to the white house in setting priorities for spending. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's like, um, have you ever heard of the, the concept called the resource curse? Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's of the, course. You know, the, the idea that, you know, uh, resource, natural resource, rich countries tend not to get the full benefits of their natural resources because it just creates this, this, giant gusher of wealth uh, that enables and smooths over dysfunction and corruption. And in a way, like what, what really bothers Phil about the, the fiscal indiscipline of our government, the, um, the, the, the gusher of money that's just poured out on, you know, NGOs kind of left-wing groups like that then lobby the government for more money in the future. Um, you know, that is a function partly of our status as having the world's reserve currency. And so the world's most powerful credit card, um, the one that we never have to pay, it seems, except in inflation coming due now. And, um, 
No, it's it's a disgrace, and I, I I would have rather this not passed and for the Republicans to fight it out next year. But this is this is what we get, and and part of it is due to McConnell, and part of it's due to McConnell trying to cut off McCarthy in the House headbangers on Ukraine, right? I mean that was that was one mm-hmm. of the issues, and that's why McConnell went out and bragged this week uh, about getting this passed now. So, Phil, rate the omnibus from zero to 10, zero, a complete atrocity from beginning to end, 10, not actually going to say good, but 10, the, the, the best that could be hoped for. Is, um, is a negative number the, uh, can I do, you know, okay. negative okay. numbers here? Basically people do negatives. I, I would just, I would just say zero. And if there were the ability to do negative, I just say maybe zero with a theoretical mathematical negative. Uh, mm-hmm. so some, some mathematical symbol we can't describe yes. attached to your zero. <laughs> Maddie Kearns. Um, I'm just going to trust Phil on this and, and I'm going to say zero as well. <laughs> All right. MB, do we have a couple zeros on the board? I mean, my, my, <laughs> my expectations were pretty low to begin with. So I feel it's like a five. I mean, um, you know, the best we could hope for, that's not true, but uh, I wasn't hoping for much anyway. Yeah, I'm with with uh, M- MBD. I would go like a four. As far as omnibuses go, it's probably not the, the worst we've seen, but this whole process is uh, really appalling and um, a, 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 a black mark against our, our system as it's currently constituted. With that, let me do a quick pre-Christmas plug for NR Plus, your last chance, people. To get uh, NR Plus for yourself or a gift for one of your loved ones, you're away around the meter paywall at nationalreview.com. You're away if you sign up and log in to see many, many fewer ads, especially the most obnoxious and annoying ads magically disappear. Your way to become a part, a deeper part of the National Review community. If if you so desire, you can comment on articles and blog posts. You can be part of our private Facebook group. You get invited to special calls and events with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. Just last week, Charlie MBD and I did uh, a a relatively small call with uh, NR Plus members, just chatting over events uh, of the day and a real informal format. So it's a great deal all around. And perhaps most importantly, is a crucial way to support our valuable journalism. We need at the end of the day, people to pay for what they read at National Review. So please, if you're not already uh, a member of NR Plus, consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR Plus. So Maddie Kearns, we had the news this week that this committee at Stanford University, it's uh, the Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative, which finds, sounds fine, right? So, nothing sinister about that. <laughs> Came up with this just incredible list. I mean, it's it's so comprehensive. I, I'm just looking here just to the, the ableist section. I, I think maybe they have 10 different sections with uh, different categories of words that have to be eschewed for various reasons. So addict would be out. We'd instead need to use person with a substance uh, use disorder, addicted. We have to use hooked or devoted instead. Basket case, we'd have to go nervous, blind review, become anonymous review, 
committed suicide, become died by suicide. I, I don't, I don't get that. It's crazy. Could no longer use that. We have to use surprising, wild, on and on and on. And uh, by the way, at the beginning, <laughs> this is so so classic. At the beginning of this extensive document, there's a content warning. This website contains language that is offensive or harmful. Please engage with this website at your own pace. And it's a content warning because trigger warning is is one of the phrases that would would be banned according to these people. And the the non-alarmists say, well, look, don't don't get all upset about this. This is just some. Uh, powerless committee at at w- one college, and uh, the co- the university hasn't actually acted on this, so nothing to worry about. But there are about you know a dozen totally insane trends that you could have said that about you know t- ten ten years um, uh, pr- prior to this that have now become mainstream in American life. Yeah, I think progressives really benefit from that complacency you've just described there. That idea that oh, what does it matter? It's just some overly zealous students or it's just some fringe activists who go a bit too far, just calm down, it's not that big of a deal. Well, if that's true, why do they devote so much time to it? And the reason they devote so much time to it is because language really does change how people think. Language Mm -hmm. does win or lose arguments, political arguments, cultural arguments. A great example of that, of course, is the, the transgender issue and conservatives being bullied or persuaded not to use precise language. We mean man when we mean man and we mean woman when we mean women. Of course, there are qualifying contexts uh, that you might say a man who thinks he's a woman or calls himself a woman, but this is not, this is still not a woman. And and it does matter. Using the language that you that you mean does matter and, and being able to offend people also matters. There's also, I, I just think reading this, first of all, it encourages really clumsy, clunky language. So immigrant, you're supposed to replace with person who has immigrated. Well, a, a good principle in writing is that you don't use more words than you have to. So out goes good writing. Um, and then also just an ability to have sort of humor um, is gone as well. I mean, in, in all seriousness, one one recommendation it makes is that the phrase not to beat a dead horse um, normalizes violence against animals. <laughs> and dead horses. See, like, are you seriously? Come on, this is ridiculous. And then you know the, the committed suicide thing. I just think is is so insidious because look, people suicide is a, a thing that you do. It's not a passive thing that befalls you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we're we're heading right, that way with right. with medicalization like of it. Dying dying of pneumonia or something. Right, exactly. This is a a choice that you made and and commit it it was originally commit because obviously you also commit a crime and and suicide is it's a moral crime it's it's better for society when that's recognized obviously there are circumstances um you you feel pity and 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 very sorry for people who who feel driven to that but that doesn't mean you should sort of embrace it as a normal neutral thing it's not it's Mm -hmm. it's neither of those things and so yeah no the, the whole thing is just insidious and um and the fact that you know, I think I think this was kind of leaked out. It's not like they announced it. So this all happens. They have these committees trying to change the way people speak. Why? Because they want to change the way people think. And conservatives are too often on the back foot about this stuff. We have to really fight for precise language. Mm-hmm. So so MBD, not not all, all these uh, suggestions, but some of them go to there, there's something that there, there's a. Um, uh, a, a moral, um, 
judgment attached to it or, you know, kind of a, 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 a lesser status a, attached to it. So prostitute is one of the words that, that we shouldn't use anymore. And I don't know what, where prostitute came from or how long we've used it, but, you know, prostitutes may be better than hooker, but they're like, no, don't say prostitute, say sex worker. But 10 years from now, someone's going to say, well, we can't say sex worker anymore because, because everyone knows what sex work is. <laughs> you know, we don't have to come up with some, some other euphemism. Immigrant, not that they're not mad, not that Maddie, there's anything wrong with immigrants, but there, there's that <laughs> aspect to it too. We see it. Um, I don't know whether it's included in, in this long list, but you know, the n- newspapers, the style guide over illegal immigrant, right? So, so now it's like people without documentation or undocumented people or whatever, but, but that will, that, that will be wrong. Um, uh, too harsh a way to put it. And they'll have to come up with something else eventually. Cause it means the same thing, you know, it means illegal immigrant and um, th- there's a, a lesser status attached to that or moral judgment attached to that. And they're trying to eliminate with it with the language, but they'll never succeed. Yeah. I mean, listen, the, the, f- you cannot govern these things in a really, hard and fast way there is the there is a phenomenon right and it is a kind of self-governing phenomenon that you just described where words fall in and out of fashion over time right like you know the the word retard used to be uh considered almost a medical term with no stigma attached to it and then stigma was attached to it as kids taunted each other on playgrounds um, and called each other retards. And, you know, we've seen the kind of semantic, um, I mean, in, in the lifetime of say my, my father-in-law, like the, the semantic wheel has gone around from saying, uh, you know, uh, colored person, Negro, mm-hmm. black, right. To, per, to, per, to, to person of color. <laughs> right. Um, right. So, um, that's something that, uh, you know, it's generational, it's, it's, it, it, it's contextual and it has to be self-regulating, but the, the crazy thing about these lists is, is when they reach down and say like, <laughs> don't use phrases like kill two birds with one stone because it implies- <laughs> Serenized bird lovers do do take objection <laughs> to that, that term, right, sir? Never say that. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's like a an attempt to take the vividness out and mm-hmm. the life out of language. I mean, right. uh, language is supposed to, um, and when it's used well, it is supposed to shake you up. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we spend all day trying to craft memorable phrases, and that's actually... I actually think that that there's a kind of behind all of this is not just, you know, progressive gobbledygook um, and this utopian vision of equality, but there's a kind of resignation from a life that has any kind of texture or adventure Mm -hmm. in it. And Mm -hmm. um, that's what I find most distressing about it. Yeah. All all, all of life will be a, a safe space. Phil Klein. Yeah, I mean, it, it's completely ridiculous. And it, I mean, it should be noted that Stanford is trying to sort of distance themselves for this. Um, this used to be publicly available, but they put it behind the password protected site and now released a, a statement saying it's not university policy. It's just these, this was sort of a, a points for discussion about 
among the IT um, community at Stanford about suggestions regarding words to use to not to avoid on writing websites. Um, But, you know, obviously it's completely ridiculous and uh, you could tell even Obama in some recent comments sort of warned against the liberal scolds who are, who are trying to police speech and tell people what words they can and cannot say. And if Obama is sort of taken aback by some of the wokeness and then you know it's just gotten really out of control. Um, and I mean, I think that Maddie is right that a lot of this is if you could change the language, you could eventually it trickles down and obscures the meaning of things and you end up changing uh, policy. And I think that that's why the work that uh, Maddie does, particularly on the transgender issue, is so important because that issue is one in which the trying to distort language just has real consequences. I mean, the whole idea of referring to a singular individual as a they just because it's it's a personal choice or changing um, the you know aggressive. You treatment to block puberty, to genitally mutilate people, basically, and to call that gender, affir- you know, affirming care. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. All of that just has very dangerous consequences. So it's funny to laugh at, but sometimes these distortions of language actually, you know, have tangible effects. So Maddie Kearns, in the fullness of time, the uh, – the work of this committee or whatever it was, um, it will be uh, successful or it will be somewhat successful or it will be a complete failure. It will be somewhat successful. In fact, it already is somewhat successful. We already use this phrase sex worker, which, which is broad by design. It's, it's, it includes pimps. So you obviously, Mm -hmm. We traditionally have had two very different attitudes to the prostitute and the, the pimp, but now it's, it's all the same. Pimp is like a sex sex employer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah, there's something very um, neutral sounding about it when in, in reality it's not like that at all. So right. uh, yeah, I, I think I think they're already they've already made a lot of um, ground on this stuff, and and they will continue to do so. Uh, maybe some of the more outlandish suggestions will will take longer or won't make it, but. Uh, but for the most part, they, they'll they'll have some success. MBD. Um. Yeah, I agree with Maddie. They'll have some success in pushing this. Phil Klein. Yeah, I generally agree. The left is good about cr- pushing all sorts of crazy ideas and theories and practices, and they may not get all of them, but there's only so much that you could sort of stop and then it gets infiltrated. And, and it, what happens is that the media starts adopting everything. And after a while, nobody knows what you're talking about if you're not using the approved language. Yep. I'll make it unanimous somewhat. So let's have a bonus exit question. Cause we are days away from Christmas here and we'll get, uh, 
Sarah in on this as well, because when any uh, question goes to family traditions, we need to hear uh, the, the shitty uh, family traditions. But Maddie Kearns, what's your favorite Christmas tradition? Well, Rich, I'm, I'm conscious of something you said on the, the last episode, which is that you've gone off. It's a wonderful life, but um, yeah. that isn't <laughs> no, it's a wonderful life. No, <laughs> that, that isn't that's my, my favorite uh, tradition. We as a family, it's a, a fairly recent thing, actually. We've only been doing it for the last five or six years, but we go either on Christmas Eve or the 23rd. And this year we're going on Christmas Eve um, to see It's a Wonderful Life in the movie theater. Uh, and we do that right before uh, midnight mass, which is no longer actually midnight anymore uh, because people couldn't couldn't stay up those extra hours. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's just I think it's a lovely movie. I think I'll always enjoy it. But um, I have to say my my brother made the same point that you did uh, the other night. He said, oh, again, <laughs> uh, But you, you go to see it in the theater. Yeah, we go see it in the theater. They do like a uh, rerun um, and the run. Right, Anyway, that's, that's nice. Yeah, maybe I can get maybe I can get get on board that MBD. <laughs> I mean, I kind of have a tie. Um, in our house, we do a Jesse tree tradition. I don't know if people know what that is. What, what is that? Um, it's like there's a we have a kind of bare looking tree, bare branches, um, a small tree, and we hang ornaments on it. An ornament on it each night, starting December first. Ah, and nice. each each ornament is a kind of it represents a story or a prophecy or a biblical character that kind of leads into the story of the birth of Jesus. And it's a great way to kind of like educate our children in the faith and they get really excited about who's gonna hang the ornament that night. And that's ah, nice. So and, it's called a Jesse tree. Yeah, and each year each year they're they're kind of understanding and the connections they make, you know, gets a little bit uh, stronger. Uh, so that's, that's been working. Nice. I, I learned so much about Christmas traditions on this podcast. I didn't know that you could ha have the wise men starting out, you know, away from the, <laughs> across the room from the nativity scene and steadily yeah. progressing in the Jesse tree. The so Jesse. Phil, I'm sure you have an equally charming and meaningful Christmas tradition at the client. <laughs> <laughs> well, this year actually, because Hanukkah coincides with Christmas, it'll, it'll probably involve eating fried foods and lighting a lot of candles um, but I would say, I mean, you're traditionally, obviously, like many Jews, we've often eaten Chinese food on Christmas. And I feel like there's a lot of mystery around this to people who aren't Jewish in terms of how this tradition started. But I mean, it's fairly straightforward in the sense that um, Jews tend to live in a lot of areas where there's a lot of Chinese food. They like Chinese food, and that's the only thing open on Christmas. And if you're not having a family, you know, Christmas uh, meal, then you know that's kind of the only game in town. Um, so that often is a de facto um, habit and tradition that that happens. Awesome. All right, Sarah. I, I have to laugh at Michael's for a minute here. My my mom is a homeschool mom, and she uh, the homeschool moms tend to do lots of things on their own and and like all the little fiddly things. My mom really does not like the Jesse tree at all. Hate is a strong mm. word, but she she Whoa. might she might hate Whoa. the Jesse tree. So wow. I, I love right. that Michael's family does it because <laughs> my family never did. <laughs> um, so our fired. 
Oh, I don't, I don't dislike it. I just, I just thought it was funny. Um, no, our, one of our favorite traditions is actually on Christmas Eve. Um, we make a big meal. We do, <laughs> we do mashed potato pizza, which is a very Midwest thing, I think. Um, and oh, is there any, any tomato sauce on that or just mashed potatoes? Just mashed potatoes. My mom home makes the crust and we make mashed potatoes. You put it on top and you put cheese and bacon and, nice. and caramelized onions and you, yeah. So then we turn all the lights that. out. Oh, it's so good. We turn all the lights out and um, we light candles and that's how we eat dinner and we chat and it's, it's such a good time. And then we all get dressed and we go to um, to midnight mass, which as Maddie said, isn't actually at midnight. But this year, some of us will actually be going to a midnight mass. So that's our sort of my favorite Christmas traditions. Very nice. Well, as I, I've mentioned before, my, my favorite tradition, unfortunately, I can't do it anymore, was the, the neighborhood church near, near our house when we were, were growing up just has a wonderful Christmas Eve service, just readings and uh, songs, and it ends with, with the lights going out and everyone gets past a, a candle and uh, a candlelit rendition of, of Silent Night. And I would just say, though, that anything involving Christmas Eve, I, I just love Christmas Eve. You know, it's it's uh, such, such a magical time. It's it's right before everything blows up and, and everyone, uh, you know, k- kids are uh, um, surfeited with all sorts of toys they're going to be um, sick of, you know, within an hour. Um, it, it's, it's just the really captures kind of, for, for me, the, the magic of, of this holiday. Uh, with that, let's hit a few other things before we go. So Maddie Kearns, speaking of Christmas magic, you had Santa showing up at a event. Yes. Uh, my aunt threw a very big party for all of our extended family. And, um, this is my dad's sister. And, uh, she said to my dad as he walked in the door, um, listen, I've got a favor to ask, come with me. And, um, he he in due course was dressed up as Santa, put a few pillows uh, up his shirt, and came downstairs with a bag of presents that my aunt had had organised. And it was just delightful. All the little kids, of, of which there are many in our extended family, uh, were really excited, and uh, my my dad really threw himself into the role. <laughs> so awesome. it's very sweet. So MBD, you're into Christmas cards. Yeah, I love. Um getting Christmas cards and sending them out. Uh, you know, what's happened, I guess, is a lot of people have kind of narrowed it down to just, you know, getting an, an updated picture of their kids out there in, uh, into the world. And it's just great to see. And it's great to, um, I'm lucky enough that I get, we get cards coming in from France, from England, from Ireland and all across the country. And, uh, it's just a nice reminder of the kind of wealth of, of friends that you collect over a lifetime. Hmm. Phil Klein, you have been watching on and off an unexpurgated edition of planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah. I mean, I, it was one of my favorite movies uh, growing up. I, I probably have seen it more than any other movie. Um, so it's one of those movies where I kind of know every line, every frame, my, um, friend and I used to just quote every silly reference in the movie. Um, and there's been a bit of a resurgence in appreciation of the movie um, as a comedy classic, you know, pairing Steve Martin and John Candy. And they just re-released a version with all sorts of deleted scenes. 
um, apparently the initial cut of the movie was over was over three hours because John Hughes apparently would just sort of let John Candy and Steve Martin kind of run amok and and see what kind of worked well and what didn't and then edit it down. Um, so it's just, I mean, like most of the, the cases, when you see deleted scenes, they you understand that there's a reason why they were deleted and didn't make it into the final cut. But it is just sort of interesting, and it, it sort of explains various things in the movie that are um, you don't know, that are sort of referred to, like... their their motel room is robbed and there's a reference to John Candy having ordered pizza. But in in the deleted scene, you see that he ordered pizza and he stiffed the, 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 um, the driver, the delivery guy and the delivery guy was pissed off about getting stiffed on the tip. So he's the one that breaks into their hotel room. So if you're sort of a fan of the movie, you know, all these sort of little things you, you can kind of appreciate. Although, like I said, you know, most of the time um, you don't necessarily need like a 30 minute um, airplane scene. (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of movies, I did not see Avatar. I, um, Nice. Uh, and, yeah, and Avatar is, is much, much lower on my hierarchy than It's a Wonderful Life. At least I saw It's a Wonderful <laughs> Life a hundred times before deciding I, I didn't want to see it again. But my, uh, I went down to see my brother uh, for the holidays. He's, he's autistic. He loves to go see, see movies. And it's kind of, it's not really the movie so much as the act of going to a, a movie for him. And for some reason, I don't know, there's just no movies out. There are no movies out. He's, he, he saw, and there are four movies in this theater, he, he'd already seen the, the others, or they were just these horrific, just terrible-looking horror movies. So we we um, get get our tickets to Avatar. I needed to finish a column anyway, so I wasn't going to be able to watch whatever it was. I wasn't going to be able to watch much of it. But I th- this thing, it's also it's more than three hours, which which I, which I didn't realize until you know going on Fandango to to buy the uh, or look at the the tickets. And I sat out there. Um, it was sort of depressing. It's like this bench with this like purple contact carpet and sort of cold and, and, and dark sitting outside this theater. And just hearing what people were saying when they were coming in and out, you know, I know the theater was like half full, but people were coming out. There's still an hour and a half left of this thing. I did see a little bit of it at the beginning, just, just enough to confirm it is horrible. It is horrible. Horrible. So anyway, I finished a column. Uh, a friend of mine, whose uh, son, son does some sports broadcasting, thank goodness, sent me uh, a, a link to a, a live um, high school hockey broadcast. I, I watched some of that. You know, I, I uh, tweeted a little bit. Just on, and still, I still like ran out of stuff to do. I read a book a little bit. More people are coming out, and then so finally, it it ended. And my brother comes out and I was like, how was it? He's like, I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. So I was like three hours of sleep. So none of us saw it, but what a, what a horrible, uh, what a, what a horrible, horrible movie. So with that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, My pick is Almond White's review of, of Martin McDonough's brutalizing the Banshees of Inishirin. Um, I hinted it in previous podcasts. I did not like this film. I, I, I mean, I, I, I like the performances, uh, and it was funny, but it, it was beautifully done in the service of a message that I thought was 
cruel and inhuman ultimately. And I, I remarkably for one of the first times had almost the exact same reaction as Armand White did to a film. Hmm. And um, he's, Sorry, what is it again? The Banshees of Inishirin. Hmm. Um, and uh, anyway, it's rare that I have the exact same reaction as him. So I wanted to note it here. Maddie Kearns, what's your pick? My pick is Phil's piece on the omnibus. I think it's a, a great thing when a writer is impassioned about something and a helpful to, to a non-expert. It's not really my area, and I, I appreciate uh, Phil's clear thinking and um, uh, lively prose on, on the subject. Phil Klein. Um, my pick is Andrew McCarthy's take on the uh, January 6th sort of closing up and criminal referrals on Trump. I mean, Andy's obviously comes to this issue with so much expertise, um, and he's just sort of so level-headed and clear-minded, both about, you know, what Trump did and his actions, but also about the cynicism of the committee and how it's sort of counterproductive. Um, And he points out how the criminal referrals actually undermine any prosecution of Trump and from a prosecutor's perspective, make things more difficult because now any prosecution of Trump is going to seem more political uh, than it otherwise would have. So um, I suggest people read that and read, you know, generally read everything that Andy writes. But uh, I think that he's really just been, um, the best on the January 6th committee stuff. So Maddie preempted me, Phil, I was going to pick your omnibus piece as well. So instead I'll go over to some more uh, back editors, back scratching and go to MBDs. Too much Alinsky talk, not enough about American interest. I do not fully agree uh, or agree much with MBD about Ukraine, but I do agree that we shouldn't romanticize it, this conflict, especially around one guy. And instead, um, our our policy should be grounded one way or the other in our interest. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the aforementioned incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to The Fire and Act and Unwind. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. Merry Christmas, everyone.